Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. As food inflation causes us to take another look at what we put in our trolleys, is it becoming increasingly difficult to feed our families healthfully? I'm looking at cheaper cuts of meat, ones that are on offer, um, you know, things like that and take less time to cook, you know. The government makes promises to tackle the cost of living in October's budget as part of a package to help ease the pressures of the cost of living crisis, but it's unlikely we'll see any relief until then. I've no doubt that if something was announced next week, before a month was out, people would be looking for another package. And a new 2.6 million euro pilot scheme announced by the government today promises to transform our nighttime economy. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions. Our hashtag is TonightVNTV. First up tonight, as grocery price inflation hits 5.5%, it's the first time that it's surpassed 5% in almost 20 years, households are facing an average increase of around €350 in their food shopping bills. Now, for some, that's just a matter of cutting down on luxuries or choosing a cheaper brand. For others, it means sacrificing the essentials. Today, our Midwest reporter, Eric Clark, has been asking the people of Limerick how they've had to change their shopping habits to adapt to rising costs. My shopping bill has gone from an average of about... 100 euros a week to 150 euros and I'm an old age pensioner my husband is in a pension as well and we just nearly died when he got to the checkout and it was 150 euros because we didn't really add anything extra to the shopping bill it was just you know we were shocked to be honest about it there is you know hike in prices and the fuel price has increased but I think for majority probably it can be managed. I do notice that even in the things that I buy they have gone up an enormous amount. Butter went from 149 to 199 that's a fair increase. Really it's just the essentials that we can just buy you know because you're not going for whereas before you'd go oh I'd like that flavour or I'd want that brand. You can't take that anymore. It's just, oh, I'll have to get this. I'll have to get that. It's basically bread, butter, milk. You know them? It's back to those days. In a studio to discuss this and more, I'm joined now by journalist Jen Hogan, Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney, the HSE's clinical lead for obesity, Professor Donal O'Shea, people for profit TD Breed Smith, and via Skype this evening by the CEO of Midwest Simon Community, Jackie Bonfield. Jackie, I'll come to you first. You're obviously seeing a lot of things on the ground in the Midwest. What exactly are you seeing the impact of the cost of living on households there? Yeah, I mean, we're actually seeing an increase in the numbers of people coming to our food bank. And it was already an exceptionally busy food bank. I mean, so far this year for quarter one, we've had over uh, 4,800 people accessing it. And of that, 1,856 of those have been children. So it is a busy service we are running all the time. 
And unfortunately, people are coming to us because they're now saying they're, they're not able to heat the house, they're not able to pay the mortgage, to pay the rent. And we have the most recent scares that we're hearing a lot of is parents who are afraid that their kids are on summer holidays and school meals are gone. So there's another burden being brought on top of people. And unfortunately, in Ireland, the choice is if you can't afford to go to your local supermarket, the choice is your food bank. There is no in, in kind of in between there. Whereas in other European countries, they offer services like social groceries, which operate like a charity shop. There's discounted food. So, but we have nothing. You're either able to buy in a supermarket in this country or you're in crisis. And that is something that really has to be addressed with the increase in costs. We're going to have to see now that how can we support people and how can we stop it that people are in dire straits. And like even today, we were talking to people and they're deciding not to eat. They're giving food to their children. They're making meals and giving the meat to their children and not having meat themselves so they can all sit around the table together. So there's a lot going on, and I do think that it's time that the government step up and start doing something to help people who really need that and who have needed it for so long already. Uh, Jackie, stay with us. Um, Jen Hogan is with us in studio as well. Jen, you obviously have a, a large network of people who get in touch with you with some of the stories that they're experiencing and the challenges of being a parent. Are they coming forward to stories you, with you for stories like that? Yeah, I mean, that's something I've been hearing particularly today. I, I went out and I was speaking to parents and asking them about it. And I mean, some of the stories you're hearing are really shocking talks of parents speaking about bulking up meals with rice or other alternatives, not able to afford um, fresh fruit and vegetables, not able to afford meat, as, as was mentioned there, not able to afford basic things. And one or two parents mentioned actually ending up in tears when they got to the checkout and um, saw the bill or somebody else panicking because they had blown the budget and literally robbing Peter to pay Paul because this, obviously, food is essential. It's a non-negotiable. And there is that huge worry as we approach the, the school holidays about the additional uh, costs that parents are going to face. Mm. Uh, Breed Smith, the government has made it pretty clear that it doesn't think it can do anything uh, to try and address this until October's budget. It says it's going to be a cost of living budget, but that you have to make sure that what you're doing then is going to be enough of a big bazooka, basically, to try and deal with the problem instead of chasing it month by month. How do you think people are going to respond to a charge like that? I think people are very angry. And uh, we saw some not massive but significant demonstrations last Saturday in response to the cost of living crisis. But the question of food, as has been said, it, it, there's not a choice about this. You have to feed your children and you have to try and feed them in a healthy way. One of the things I, I, I recognise we're coming up to the summer holidays, but one of the things I think the government have to do, and that is expand the school meals programme from 1,500 schools to the 3,600 schools that we have. So we're way behind in terms of European standards, even the standards that they have in Britain in how we treat our school children and give them healthy meals. And that would be at the very minimum, they should do that. But at the end of the day, unless we give people income rises that match inflation, they're not going to be able to manage But this. if you give people more money, Breed, then the, the, there isn't going to be any more stuff in the supermarket. And this is a supply versus demand thing. If you give people more money to spend and the products are still in the same supply, does that not only make the problem worse because the price goes up if a supermarket thinks people can afford it? Well, I think what we heard there from the Vox Pop was that there's stuff in the supermarket, but people can't afford to make the choices, the healthy choices that they need to make. Now, we're not quite in famine stage yet where the, where the shelves are running low. Um, you can see stuff missing off shelves, but it is not that they have to choose not to buy. And I, I refute this argument that if you give people more money, you add to inflation. That's not the case. If that was the case, then workers would have had pay rises over the last two or three years and income rises on pensions and social protection and loan parent family loans, etc., of 8 to 10%, which is what we're looking at inflation at the moment. And they haven't had that 
they've had at best 2%. So we need to address the question of the gap in income and okay. inflation. Uh, Mary Siri Carney, you've seen the Vox up there from Eric's report in Limerick today. You've heard what Jackie's saying about people who are coming because they've got nowhere else to go. Is the government just showing a tin ear to people like that when it says they're not going to get any help till October? Or how do you justify not doing anything for another four months? Well, I, I suppose, first of all, I, I do hear it on the ground uh, myself and uh, I'm, I'm in touch with, with people like Ruth Harkness in the, in the, um, in the Penny Dinners project. And so ha- for some time have been both reporting in and, and listening to the hardship that people are, are experiencing. And, and, and how, on how do the you ground. then tell those people that they have to hold tight for four more months? I, I think that the, the words used by the Thornishta today was that we would have a major intervention, that the budget this year is going to be very much looking at the most vulnerable uh, through both our social welfare and pensions. And we heard, you know, someone on a pension there needing that to be addressed. Uh, Then secondly, looking at middle income families who don't get state support and ensuring that they have more money in their pockets that they can exercise when they're at the tails in the supermarkets. But that might be great if if you can hold tight till October. But if you can't make it till October, if the prices continue to rise in the meantime, you're going to have more people falling into this trap in the middle where they can't afford life, but nor can they just justify any sort of support. So for example, if you're not doing anything till October, that means no expansion of the school, meal, school meals scheme, surely, doesn't it? Yeah, well, the school meals programme is under review at the moment. I was with uh, Minister Heather Humphreys when she launched the review of that uh, in Skull Trasanefa in, in just off Denor Avenue. And in that, she expressed her ambition to ensure that every primary school child in the country um, gets a, a meal and a nutritious meal that is balanced in, in nutrition but that, in their that's schools. A, but nice to interrupt you again, but that, that's a medium term review. That's not due back into the autumn. So that wouldn't take effect for this summer, would it? In, in her, on the day of her launch, she expressed her ambition to have a, it, an expansion built into the budget of this year. So that certainly is on the table for discussion not as for this, well. Not for this coming to, summer, though. Um, at this moment in time, it's not there for the summer. I know that last night the, the three party leaders received a briefing specifically from um, Minister McGrath and Minister Donoghue uh, to look at what are, what are our options, what is the scope within the budget and to ensure that it is a very strategic intervention to support families. Uh, Donald O'Shea, it wouldn't necessarily be a, a silver bullet, but would expanding the school meal scheme and making sure that children have access to healthy food all summer, would that make a material difference for you? Um, it would be a, a very positive step um, in, in the right direction. We have a limited school meal scheme. But the backdrop we're talking about here is of population obesity levels that have never been higher, childhood obesity levels that spiked during COVID. And I'm absolutely struck by the lack of the food and drinks industry representation here because I'm sure they were invited, were they? Oh, I can't tell you that off the top of my head. I'm sure okay. they were. Um, and they're not here because they're winning all the way to their bottom line and their bank mm-hmm. balance. There isn't one buy one, get one free offer that applies to healthy foods. It's all the high fat, high salt, high sugar, highly processed food. And I think that we could start there by getting Musgraves to uh, look at their bog offs, as they call them, buy one, get one free, uh, and start uh, looking at them in their you know, the healthy food division, not just the processed poison they're peddling very effectively, uh, digitally, online and continually to our underage kids. Uh, let me go back to, to Jackie Bonfield, the CEO of, of uh, Midwest, Simon, about all of that. Um, Jackie, you must be seeing some clear evidence on the ground of people who can no longer afford to go for the healthy options and end up padding out the trolley with unhealthy food for their families. Oh, absolutely. We've seen that for a long time now. And healthy options are expensive options. 
And that's where there is no choice. And what we have to do is we have to give people black bags of food that they have to take home. And that in includes stuff like bolognese, rice, pasta, you know, the stuff that if you could afford it, you wouldn't be feeding your kids every day of the week. So there is no choice. And what we have done by allowing food poverty to be the mainstay in so many houses in this country is we've taken away the choice, we've taken away the dignity, and we've taken away the empowerment for families not to fall into the trap of obesity because they have to decide between heating, eating, uh, so healthy options, absolutely, they're not even in the conversation. All they want to know is can we afford to eat today or can we afford to eat tomorrow if we can't do it today? Uh, Jackie Bonfield, we'll let you go. Thank you very much for joining us this evening live on The Tonight Show. Um, there was, I think, a report in the Sunday Independent a couple of days ago about how um, of the standard food budget now, Jen, um, that 5% of the, the family's grocery spend goes on fruit, 7% on groceries. And I think over 20%, almost 30%, was going on snack foods. It was going on crisps and chocolate and biscuits. It must be becoming increasingly difficult when you're going around if you're trying to figure out something that's going to keep your family going in the meantime. And the cheapest thing is a yeah. packet of biscuits or a multi-packet of crisps. It's very difficult to avoid the temptation. That's it. And that's what was pointed out to me today by a parent, that it's actually cheaper to buy things like pizzas or crisps or chocolate than it is to buy fruit and vegetables and maybe some more substantial meals. And certainly meat is off the table for a lot of people because of the cost of that at the moment. So, so it's just, it, it, the options aren't actually there for parents. They're aware of it. I mean, there is certainly, perhaps I know there's discussions around education and stuff before, um, in the past in terms of eat, feeding our children healthily. But even now, even parents are aware that they're not making healthy choices, but there's nothing they can do because they're, they're restricted because by finances. Not only is there a cost poverty issue, there's also a time poverty issue as well, where it's far easier yeah. to put on a frozen pizza than it is and to make is, a meal from yeah. scratch. I mean, times have changed, and that's certainly something that people are experiencing. Now, particularly as the return to office has happened, because people are back, the commute is back, the longer day is back, the, it's not as easy to throw in the dinner because you're not at home, mm -hmm. so preparation comes into it too. So absolutely, that's certainly a factor too. Uh, Breed Smith, is there a, you, you talked about the school meals programme. Is there a role for schools and for food education in general where you might be able to, to intervene almost at scratch and try to make sure that children themselves know that there's, there's long-term consequences to the sort of stuff that they might like to eat but that they know really should be off the table for them. Yeah, all of these things are important and I'm sure the doctor would uh, agree with me that uh, low-income families are more prone to obesity and to poor diet and that's not because of the current crisis. That's always been the way. They spend Low-income families spend about a third of their budget. I think that's the statistic mm. on food and their choices are reduced to the cheapest and that's forever been like that um, it's just as exacerbated and spreading to more families now because of the crisis so on the question of education absolutely we all need to learn more to do things better and you will notice that there's always a difference between the general health of higher income kids and families than there is yep. with the poor you can see it around you it's obvious you see it when you where you live and how you live, that, that, that it does affect uh, low-income families worse. So there, I, I do agree mm. with the whole idea of tackling the food and drinks industry. They tried to do this in the UK and they pulled back from it only a year ago because of the kickback from the well, industry, who are making vast profits at the moment, by the way. Yeah. It's not like they're losing. Well, We're just, losing income, but they're not. Just before I asked Donald about the role of education, Breed, because people, you know, Donald pointed out that there's never a buy one, get one free for fruit or vegetables to try and make them cheaper for people. We know that a lot of agriculture operates at very fine margins anyway. Farmers don't feel like they're paid enough for some of the produce that they make. So, so what do you do to try and make healthy food cheaper when farmers are already cutting their margins so finely? Well, there is an argument um, in this country in particular about farming differently because the mainstay of our farming is growing the herd, whether it's uh, uh, cows or sheep or pigs. That is the mainstay of what we do and most of it is for export. 
Many farmers will tell me, the poorer and the more low-income farmers that I meet, will tell me that they would love to see farming going back to actually growing fruit and vegetables and everybody having a chance to do that. When we grew up in council housing, we had big back gardens precisely because we were encouraged, families were encouraged to grow their own spuds and cabbages mm. and stuff like that. You, you don't get that now. You get small apartments that you can barely live in, never mind have a... Have, a, have a, sure. a space that you can grow stuff in. Communities gardens are very good. They're all uh, potentially good. But on scale, we do need, and I'll just repeat, we do need to intervene and Mary Siri Kearney and our government need to do this to bring people's incomes level up to inflation. Yeah, well, in fairness, there's no, no role for, for Musgraves or the likes of that this evening to try and defend themselves. And I'll come to Mary for, for her response in a moment. But Donald, just to bring you back in on the question of education, is there a kind of a silver bullet for food education there? Or, or what would be a good government intervention, given that it's now becoming increasingly difficult for people to afford healthy food? Yeah, I mean, the Department of, of Education have an SHPE curriculum that is, gives 300 hours or 600 hours in time to well-being and there are plans to have detailed education around food, practical education around food that's necessary. Uh, the industry will, will talk about parental responsibility you know, and honestly we, we know that the digital marketing wins over that hands down. We've had that evidence for 20 years so parents need to be heroes at the moment to try and protect their kids from, from the environment. Education. So how do you then how do you ad, uh, adjust the environment if a parent can't keep children away from advertising? Um, you ban well, the advertising? You, you have to legislate. You have to, uh, you know, the government have talked about a Public Health Obesity Act. Uh, the Department of Health are, are actively looking at that. Uh, and we, we need to do that because we know the, that voluntary doesn't work. The industry have fantastically well opposed the introduction of calorie posting on menu boards. Three ministers have called for it, including our current Tónishtha, um, when they were ministers for health, have said we will legislate. Um, and it's on the shelf now because industry have lobbied effectively. Mary, is it the result of lobbying? Has the government fallen over to the, the almighty euro? I, well, I, I don't agree. Ireland is actually co-leading at the moment in an EU joint action plan uh, that to look at, at that marketing of unhealthy foods, specifically in the digital sphere. And I, I know I've, I've had discussions with the Irish Heart Foundation who are, are also championing a campaign on that. Uh, but also under the, the Salonja Care, you know, the, the um, community health programme, there are plans aligned to, to what has been discussed here uh, to recruit 19 officers to for that for that pure education purpose of so how to, school of to, how school, to, to, to make ensure sure yeah to ensure that that but going information going and that recruitment school school, can, uh, is ongoing. At there's, the there's a value to it, but then it's only going to be of limited purpose if a family can only afford unhealthy food. It's all well and good training a child to know that fruit and vegetables are king if there's no well, fruit well, and vegetables. Well, and it is aligned to all of that that we look at a, a strategic intervention um, and and again reiterating the Thunishtas words today of a major intervention that this budget is about that cost of living and, and equipping uh, particularly the most vulnerable families and, and those who are middle income families who are, are, are paying price without the support of, of state and also then aligned. So putting more money into people's pockets and also then ensuring that there is that education delivered at the point as well as the school meals. Don't you want to come back in? There, there is a narrative that you cannot eat uh, healthily cheaply. Um, and that needs to be challenged and upskilling uh, parents through programmes like Healthy Food Made Easy that are, are run out in the community is, is a start. It is going to be more expensive to eat uh, healthily, uh, but it is still going to be cheaper uh, than going to a local takeaway to feed a family of five uh, if you have the proper skills, but you do need the skills. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Jen, I'm sort of quite struck by the idea of trying to clamp down on digital advertising, particularly if that's an area which, as Donald says, that they're they're winning because it's it's very difficult to to control anything or to legislate really to, to control anything that happens online. It sort of strikes me as this false panacea that you could somehow just try and ban advertising and expect children never to come across it in any other kind of forum. Yeah, I mean, I. I... It, look, there certainly is. I mean, children are targeted all the time and parents feel the pressure of it. And obviously now, especially even with kids on digital devices and they're on YouTube or they're on whatever else and they're targeted by particular ads the whole time and the algorithm really works around making sure they get who they need to get. So it is, they're often lying about their age as well. So even if you, you try and tell it, oh, don't put it on Facebook for under 16s, but if they're all lying about their age, then, they're going to see it. Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly it. So, but even, I mean, it's even very easy for them going into little games that they might play online and there's advertisements associated with them. Even younger children, it's targeting from a very young age. That is, I suppose, that is one aspect of it. And I do think, I mean, even, I suppose, the ads on television, we might see parents are, to a, to a large degree, I suppose, we are aware that you're being targeted. Mm. You, you might be aware of that. But again, I do think when it comes back to going to grocery shopping and you're looking at the cost first and, and making it go far enough, because one parent mentioned today about having to reduce the portions she was giving to her children to try to make food, the food go around. It's as desperate as that. And it's as desperate as the situation where you have parents crying themselves to sleep or, or as I said robbing Peter to pay Paul so it isn't the advertising absolutely is a huge part of it but there is a situation here where parents don't think that they can afford sufficient amounts of healthy food to make a meal go around. Mm. Uh, Breed Smith it would also be the case though that even if you did ban all the advertising of all the, the foods or biscuits or snacks or all the other stuff that children aren't supposed to be eating that when they go to a supermarket even if it's not at the checkout they're going to pass it in the aisle anyway so it, is it a bit of a, a false pretense to try and pretend that you can keep this, this idea away from children where they're always going to see it in the shop no matter what? I mean, I, I, I don't mean to offend anybody but I think people who are in desperate situation like it's just been described going crying at night wondering how am I going to feed my kids tomorrow in the current situation will be quite frustrated with this conversation. They want to know what immediate measures the government are taking, not in October, not in four months' time, but what immediate measures they will take to alleviate the hardship on them and help them to get over a period that is really cruel on them, on their children and on themselves. And obviously education advertising where you put things in the shop, tackling the food and drinks industry is all part of it. But we're talking about an immediate crisis. That's what we started watching uh, from the people in mm. Limerick today. And we have to address that. And no doubt we'll be discussing the immediate crisis on this show and indeed on many others as well. That's all the time we have for on this side. And my thanks to Professor Donal O'Shea. The rest of the panel is staying with us. After the break, could we finally see government action to bring down the cost of childcare? Don't go away. Welcome back. Now, the government says it's its objective to help parents in the upcoming budget with a substantial cut in the cost of childcare in a bid to ease the pressure of the cost of living crisis on families. However, according to some creche owners, the current freeze on fees is already putting their businesses under unsustainable pressure. Jen Hogan, Senator Sari, Mary, Mary Siri Carney, excuse me, and Deputy Breed Smith are still with us. We're also joined by Skype by Crona Byrne, who's the owner of the Owl and the Pussycat Daycare in Ballina and County Tipperary. Uh, first of all, Mary Siri Carney, um, I know the budget is not for another four months. I'm not expecting you to give us the whole scoop this evening. But what can you tell us around what the government is actually planning to do around the cost of childcare? Well, well, I, like you, don't have an insight into what's going to be into the budget. However, uh, the, the programme for government set out a, a very serious commitment to childcare and the alleviation of the fact that childcare fees are enormous. They're the size of a month's rent, a, a mortgage. Uh, and if you have. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have a number of children, it becomes uh, it's certainly untenable to to uh, to be working and having children in childcare uh, if they're under a certain age. So we saw last year in the budget, uh, and that and a, a, a I suppose a, an unprecedented amount of two hundred and twenty one million uh, committed, and we will only see that coming to fruition now as the core funding comes on stream uh, from September, and that that services there is this move to the financing and support for the place and the number of places that a service provider so if they have a, if they ha- don't have full capacity and there are very few of them without full capacity at the moment mm. uh, but if they don't have full capacity that they will have the benefit of the costs and those costs are are broken down to the actual cost of the provision of that place and um, so it's a it's a more realistic amount and and the service providers can go on the ready reckoner which is online uh, or and get the support of their county and city childcare committee this, this in is order all, to all likely to, to be based it. around the premise though that childcare providers are going to have to freeze their fees at current levels that they're they're only yes. going to qualify for this support if they keep the prices what they currently are yes so so i suppose we have some providers who have been caught in the fact that during covid obviously the government moved to very much support the childcare sector and and if anything it reiterated just how vital it is is to, to our economy and to the development and support of children. Um, and so uh, there was a, a price freeze to ensure that the cost wasn't, uh, that parents weren't, weren't charged the cost during COVID. Uh, so there was a price freeze then, and this is a price freeze for, for one year. But built into the programme is a sustainability fund. So where there are services who find that their, their costs are not being met. Okay. Uh, and maybe to roll back, first of all, the first point would be the minister has committed that no service will provide will be will receive less than they currently have. Okay. In fact, the 99% of services will will receive more. For those for whom there is that recognition that you know 2020 came upon us very suddenly, and uh, for those who hadn't increased fees and who are frozen okay. at 2019, 
this sustainability fund, they can apply to that. They lay open their books and, and sure. there has to be a transparency okay. around their, their claim of hardship and the sustainability fund right. will support them. Uh, let me bring in Corona Byrne then because Corona, I'm sure that your crash, like any other enterprise or any other business, is also suffering with inflation. Your costs are rising as well. How would it work for you if there was more funding but you had to freeze your costs to your clients in the meantime? We, it's not going to be fully sustainable for us to be able to do that, in fairness. We have, no matter what, we have fought through the last two years and we have fabulous staff working with us all. Um, the problem is there are some services that will not survive this. And what we're looking for is for fair core funding for everybody. Um, having to fight and prove that you're down money shouldn't even come into this, I believe, myself. Um, there's ECC services out there and I have seen and I have heard the people talking, crying on the phone that they have worked all their lives with their ECC services and they do not think they will be able to open in 2023 with what is coming up for them. And that is unfair. Why they is that, Corona? What's, what's happening about the businesses? Why would it be unsustainable next year or the year after if it's been sustainable up till now? What's changing for them? Well, inflation has gone up so much. It, it, you know, our running costs are getting higher and higher, and this doesn't seem to have been taken into account at all, right across the board. Um, we, you know, our insurance has gone up, our rents, rates, everything is going up, yet no one has thought of that in this core funding at present. So hence why, you know, we need to kind of fight for these people and you know, for the smaller service, the ECC service, services that are going to find this a lot harder because they wouldn't have the same funds coming into them that full day care providers would have. Um, it seems to me, Jen Hogan, that it's really important then you have to try and make sure that you do both things right. You have to try and make sure that it's not too prohibitively expensive for parents, but also you have to make sure that these things don't go out of business. But even to go back to the point the parents are paying, parents are already paying so much that even if you were to try and hold steady or even having a moderate cut, it would still be a huge sum they're paying out every month. It's already crippling us if they can manage to secure childcare in the first place. Well, true, because yeah. that, that's proving hugely problematic as well at the moment. But again, speaking to parents today, it, it, this is, has largely become a Women, a woman's issue because over the course of the pandemic we already saw how women were disproportionately impacted and affected when we had school closures and when we had childcare issues and when people were trying to do everything and be everything to everybody at the same time and it was women who largely stepped back from work perhaps took time out of work uh, unpaid leave career breaks things like that or walked away from work altogether and it's still it's still women who are making that decision largely based on childcare costs, they're deciding perhaps with their partners not to have another child because they're not able to um, afford to have a second child perhaps, or they're, they're not able to continue and work because their, their whole or most of their wage is being entirely swallowed by their childcare costs. Mm. And it's just, it's not a sustainable situation, even as things are at the moment. So it would need, parents really needs a substantial relief really to try and make make um, things work for yeah. them because it's just it's just not workable at the moment. Uh, um, Breed Smith, I think everyone would like it if childcare was fully nationalised and there wasn't any upfront costs or the costs were something more akin to what they are in continental Europe where it's only a couple of hundred per month rather than maybe four figures or more. But we don't have a, a magic money tree in Ireland to do that. So how would you make childcare more sustainable? Well, I think we need to first of all recognise that we have the most fragmented, most privatised and most inadequate childcare system in the whole of the OECD. It's a remarkable figure actually. And one of the demands that we constantly make is that we bring the level of spend in our budget up to the European average, the level of uh, percentage spend. 
of our GDP is tiny compared to the European average. So and to we're bring way to the average, what, what is that in, in I th- Europe? I think sense? it's around uh, 0.3%. Um, but sorry, Gavin, I haven't got that figure in okay. front of me, but we're, we're way below it's it. And that's probably hundreds of millions, though, to bring it back up to a European absolutely, average. Absolutely, probably is hundreds of millions. Which we don't I probably have. won't win a lot of friends among the, the childcare sector. I've had this discussion with many of them whom I've met, but I'm for a nationalised childcare sector. We would not put up with a fragmented, privatised system for our primary schools and our secondary schools. And yet when kids leave childcare, that's where they go. And they go into a national system that's run through the Department of Education on a national budget. And ultimately, I think that's where we have to go. In the meantime, though, there are many problems. And I think the woman who spoke there mm. outlined them. That the, the, the childcare system, because it's privatised, they're subject to the sort of same pressures from inflation. She mentioned rent. She mentioned insurance. And that's absolutely true. And uh, the wages of workers in that sector, they're not terribly high. So we hemorrhage a lot of workers from the sector. And yet the workers who love the job they do and the providers love doing the provision. But we've got these contradictions where the government create these schemes and they're very complex. Mm. I had to have a look at them recently when I met a group of um, providers. There's very complex and fragmented schemes. Uh, but there's also schemes that the, some of the bigger providers don't uh, buy into them. They don't accept them. So they charge the full cost uh, to the parents. Um, there's about 9,000 places in Dublin. I can't say yeah. they're all big providers. So, but, but, but they don't accept the, the state subsidies they don't, there. No, they just opt no, there's out. about 9,000 childcare places in Dublin. So I got this answer back in a PQ. Not necessarily from the big providers. I suspect it is, but okay. I don't know for sure but they haven't accepted the subsidies from the government. So parents are paying in full. So you're looking for a lot of parents at sort of second mortgage style uh, costs for their childcare. Well, let me go back to to Crona Byrne on that then. Crona, is there an argument to be made that actually it could be made easier for you or for other childcare providers just to cut down on some of the bureaucracy? Would it give you a little bit more breathing space? Absolutely. I mean, the paperwork we go through is absolutely phenomenal. It really is. The continuous... Uh, paperwork that we have on our desks day in, day out. Now, can I also say that, you know, we're not, the parents all need to be looked after, and I think we're all in agreement about that. But what's been forgotten is our staff and our team need to be looked after also because the cost of inflation is affecting them as well. And that's why a lot of them are also leaving childcare because, again, they can't be, the fees, they're not the fees, but their wages aren't being met enough to cover in the sector, but this is all down to funding as well. That must have then a, a major it's impact. All down to uh, again. That must have a major impact, though, if there is a something of a staff exodus. Then that has an impact on the number of places that each crash can offer, and of course, then the number of crashes that there are. That's right. It does. It's having a huge effect, but yet no one has come up with the solution to help us to take on staff. There, years ago, there used to be a grandfather clause where you could employ somebody who is a bit older to come in, and they could sit and read to the children and. They weren't guaranteed they weren't going to remain in the sector for over five years. And that was a wonderful thing. And it did help out with staffing issues. But again, that is gone. And there doesn't seem to be any answer to our staff shortage. And that's a big, big issue for all of us right across the board. Uh, Jen, just how universal are these supply issues? Is it just an, an urban thing or do you hear a lot from more rural parents no, who are struggling as I'm, well? I'm hearing it from rural commu- from uh, parents living in rural communities too, saying that they're having to perhaps travel an extra hour to get their child to a childcare facility an and then hour. perhaps go on to work. Yeah, as, as long as that, because it's the only way that they can work around securing childcare for their child and actually yeah. continue to work. Which is an so, hour's worth of petrol or diesel, and, which they can't uh, afford And, right and now there either. you go, you have that additional pressure and that cost too. And that's why it's all, it's all spiralling, it's all factoring into the huge 
huge financial pressures that they're finding themselves under on top of the of the cost of childcare itself. Uh, Mary, I didn't think that this discussion would, would go down quite the, the, you know, the bureaucratic note that it has, but I sort of wondered that with all these, these elaborate schemes, and I've had to apply for some of those subsidies as well, and the, you know, the, some of the, the paperwork that you have to go through for the parents' side is extensive, mm -hmm. let alone what the creche providers have to do. Have we managed to strangle the sector with bureaucracy, to, with all these sort of piecemeal changes over the years, when actually we should just wipe the slate clean and start all over again? Well, I suppose we, we, we have the system that's there that is complex and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, applying under the various schemes needs a lot of support. I, I, I was a former childcare provider myself uh, and, and I've gone in for a number of years and, and been the troubleshooter when there were difficulties in, in service the provision. The Shannon have less paperwork. Is that what you left? <laughs> so, uh, so prior to my career in the Shannon, that, that was an area, particularly in law and, and supporting uh, service providers because it is onerous and a case that I've made myself is to look at having um to cut down on the bureaucracy within the budget, the 221 million, uh, there is a provision of uh, 25 million for uh, administrative time. There is in the programme for government and, and very much a passion of our own party, and it came out recently in the Finnegale Policy Lab for the care of the child, that we have a child care authority and that everything okay. is centralised that deals with the education and the support uh, and for okay. career progression and also deals okay. with the preschool regulations am, and the inspection. I'm running really short on time, but I want to very briefly just go back to Corona. Corona, um, if, if it isn't a case of having some sort of freeze and fees, what, what can the government do in 20 seconds that could make the budget easier for you? I, I, I really don't know. There's so many areas that now need to be covered by the government. Um, there's a protest in Dublin tomorrow uh, over the childcare core funding to make it more fair for everybody right across the board. And I think people are going to have to look, go back and relook at part of this funding. Uh, they certainly didn't ask a lot of people um, about what areas they felt needed more funding. So the surveys they did didn't cover a lot. I know for one, I wasn't asked any information in regards survey a survey towards uh, any of the funding. So I think they really need to go back and they need to help us and they need to help themselves come to an agreement, an arrangement of something that will be sustainable for all of us, especially with this rate of inflation being so shockingly okay. high. Uh, we will leave it there. My thanks to Corona and also to Jen and to Breed. Mary Siri Carney is staying with us. Lots more after this break when we look at the government's efforts to revive our nighttime economy. Don't go away. Welcome back. Now, today, the Minister for Arts, Catherine Martin, TD, launched a new pilot grant scheme to the tune of €2.6 million Euro to help boost the nighttime economy in Ireland, a sector that we know faced particular hardship over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. So will the scheme help us see our urban centres revived and rich in culture, or does it miss the mark somewhat? Well, Fine Gael Senator Mary Siri Carney is still with us. I'd also like to welcome the studio singer and actor Paul Byram. And joining us via Skype is the DJ and campaigner with Give Us the Night, Sunil Sharp. Uh, Sunil, I'll start with you. You've been working uh, with the government and with Minister Martin to try and bring forward some of these initiatives. Uh, what do you make of what she's announced today? Yeah, I mean, we've been aware of the, of these uh, measures and this particular action for quite some time. It's been in the works for probably the best part of a year and a half now. I'd say the execution of elements of the the report itself and some of the actions have been very slow, um, and there are various reasons for that. For this particular action, I mean, we have to give credit to the department. We don't always have a lot to shout about um, in our industry, and today is a very welcome initiative, um, and it will impact on 
obviously traditional nighttime economy businesses like pubs, clubs, restaurants. But I think there are other organisers, other spaces, other types of uh, businesses who may find opportunities within this initiative. You know, this initiative, anything from, you know, bookshops to barbers to record shops. I mean, the, the list is endless. Coffee shops. I mean, we definitely need to bring more life and activity into our urban centres and, and our towns and rural areas as well. And I think there's uh, a, a lot of opportunity here for a lot of different individuals and organisations. Uh, Paul Byram, you're in an industry which has really struggled in the last couple of years. Your own uh, work rate and, and income would have been quite a lot down. Um, people would think that this is the sort of scheme that people like you would welcome, but you're not so convinced about this. I, I just worry. Uh, I mean, obviously, look, it, it's important to say that the government have tried to help our industry in a number of ways over the over the pandemic. And it has been challenging to try and help everybody. I mean, we've had a show tonight of listening to a whole load of industries that are struggling. And, mm. and especially now with, with uh, things going up, you know, the, our industry is harder now than ever before to be in it, should I say. And I kind of worry that, you know, the only stipulation is that artists must be paid and entertainers must be paid. That's the only stipulation. There's no, uh, there's no stipulation as to how much they should be paid. You know, what percentage of the funding that's granted to, let's say, a bookshop or a pub goes to the artist. And, and I, I, I feel, I, I worry that maybe it's more catered towards helping these venues as opposed to helping entertainers. And the entertainers, by and large, in a lot of these pubs and clubs and whatever else, they don't get paid very well. It's not great pay. So, and for example, so if, if there was an event in, in a bookshop or a comedy club, for example, you're worried is that the, the performer might only get a fraction of it and that the venue then just pockets the difference and takes it as a subsidy? Well, I think there's, there is stipulation in there to, to prevent that. But I do worry that, you know, I, I can't understand why the artists aren't getting um, maybe more involved in this as to how, how much they're actually getting paid. That's what I... I feel they should be getting maybe a lot more of the of the pie, you know, and I, I, I worry there's 2.6 million there. I personally speaking, and I'm coming from an artist's point of view, I feel that the 2.6 million would be greatly welcomed within people that work in the late night in entertainment industry. And maybe if they were to approach venues and say, look, this is the funding I've got, would you be interested in hosting a night? At least they're in control. They're possibly getting more of the money. Whereas bars, for example, they're doing all right financially, you know, on the old pint or whatever else. And, and the guy sitting in the corner might get 200 quid for the night, you know, and, okay. and that's, that's what I worry about. To then, let's put that then to Mary Siri Carney. Mary, it seems like it might be a good idea in, in principle, but that the execution might be a little off. Can we be sure that the money is going to go to, to the performers for whom it's actually intended? I suppose it's important to, to look at it that there are two strands here being provided for. One is the licensed premises and then the other are, are non-licensed premises, uh, cafes, galleries, uh, bookshops, all, all of those. And one thing that one organisation that came to mind today for me was the, the St. Michael's Resource Centre, uh, Safety Resource Centre in each core for, for um, Bloomsday. Uh, performed, did a performance of Ulysses in Golden Ridge Cemetery. Uh, so applicants to this will get a maximum of 10,000 uh, euros. They have to run four events in that. Uh, it allows for creativity. It allows for uh, photography uh, events. It allows for poetry. It allows for uh, diversity. And, and so I think in actual fact, it will promote creativity. It's important to note that it's a pilot scheme. So yeah. I, I suppose all pilot schemes are subject to review. And at that point, I, I think under the review to hear from artists and to, to see how we address concerns, you know, valid concerns that Paul is, is raising um, and to ensure that. But that is coupled with a, a proposed extension of the outdoor seating and the, the that, that 
that change in culture may be one of the few mm. good things that came out of COVID, that we have this change of, of where is the venue, mm. of where we, we sit and how we, we extend but, the, but, the, the covers. But, 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 but when you talk about venue. extending outdoor seating, is that not exactly what, Paul, what you're talking about, that it ends up becoming more about trying to subsidise the entertainment economy, but not necessarily about the performers the themselves? The performers. And I, I think actually in this, you're not allowed, if it's an outdoor event, apply for the, the funding. Um, you know, I, there is also no stipulation that says that bars, which we all know over the years, would, if they're having a comedy night, they'll charge 15 at the door, you know, and maybe they'll, you know, take 10 for the bar and then five will go to the comedians, you know, uh, or the, uh, the singers or the actors or whatever it might be that they're hosting. And so I wonder, do they get their funding and then they can still charge at the door? Mm. I mean, like, I think fundamentally it's getting harder to be an entertainer in this country, especially late night entertainers. You know, you're traveling the cost of petrol where we know is through the roof. So you're traveling from one town to the next. Yeah. It's near impossible in this country now to get insured by any company mm. on the car if you say that you're a singer. They just won't entertain it. Because they think your, your income is too... Nothing to do with your income. In, that they frequent. put it down to that you're late night travelling or that you might be tempted to have a drink after your gig or you might be high risk. Okay. Um, so if you ring any of the insurance companies it's, and you say, hi, I'm a singer, I'm looking to get insured on my Audi, they'll say, listen, thanks a million, take care. Um, you know, needless to say, getting rent, getting mortgages, all of those things okay. are extremely difficult for, for, for singers and entertainers. And I just feel if there's 2.6 million going mm. for late night entertainment, let's sure look at giving it to... The entertainers. Yeah. Um, Sunil, um, obviously the nighttime economy has taken a real battering in the last couple of years. 2.6 million is only a pilot scheme, but how much of a difference would it make and how will it actually change how we view our urban nightlife? Um, well, it's it's for most venues or spaces or promoters or whoever it might be. I mean, it could be an artist collective. There's nothing to say that um, artists or promoters couldn't get together, approach a venue, and it could be more artist led. And I do I do agree with what Paul was saying there. Um, the, the focus does need to be on performers and artists. And you know, I know there could be that feeling that this particular action. Our initiative is there to appease uh, pubs and restaurants and, and other of the kind of larger stakeholders in this conversation. Uh, but I think it's for everyone, you know, I think it's for artists and performers being at the centre. 2.6 million is won't go too far overall, but I think it can lead to new new types of events, people using their imagination. Also, people have to send in the application. They have to make sure it's it's good enough to be to, to be approved. So I think in terms of the, the uptake and the feedback we've got from people today, there'll be a wide range of people going for that and it will make a difference. Can, you know? can we be sure though, Sunil, that there will always be venues that you can always accommodate the sort of this? Because today we've seen news you know, that the, the beer garden outside Fibber McGee's or Murray's at the top of O'Connell Street might be disappearing as well. And some people would argue that we have a department which is responsible for arts, but it's also a department responsible for tourism and they will flatten anything to make way for a hotel if they think that's the best way for a city to go. Yeah, I mean, I think the I think the departments are in a very difficult situation here. I mean, I I wonder if you ask some of the people in the department whether they want tourism to be part of the of the minister's portfolio. If they if they would, you know, it appears like the minister herself as well would obviously be on the side of artists and on venues and us all having access to space. But we're we're now entering a, a space crisis. You know, anything from the 
the Richmond Road Studios uh, collective who ha- who literally have to be out in the morning who were served in a, an eviction notice only days ago. Um, and then you talk about the, the Fibbers or the O'Connell Street uh, uh, strip there where the three pubs meet. I mean, that could have been avoided. That's really bad strategic planning from Dublin City Council. And it's not consistent with some of their recent, uh, recent decisions where they did acknowledge that there was a, a, an over-concentration of hotels in the city centre. So why, after making the, a series of decisions that supported a, a, a more strategic or okay. um, uh, ch- charitable approach okay. when it comes to sure. art spaces and venues, would they now would they now uh, divert and 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 appro- approve this? For okay. just one last point on this: no. the cobblestone, the cobblestone uh, that that was that, that was uh, that, that was shot down in the end, but this one is approved. That doesn't quite make sense, you know. But I, we do think the minister needs to make 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 these points, especially to okay. the top. Uh, I'm no. repeating here, so oh, I'm not really no, able to that's hear right. No, we're completely out of time. Anyway, so that, that's all yeah, the time yeah, we're yeah, going to have yeah. to accommodate. And sorry that we couldn't bring Paul or, or Mary back in. But thank you very much for joining us this evening. Uh, Mary Siri Carney, Paul Byram and Sunil Sharp as well. Thank you to all of our guests for joining us this evening. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram at TonightVMTV. From all the late team here, thank you very much for watching this evening. Good night, take care and see you tomorrow night. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.